So anyway, Ian, good to talk to you. Um, I've got several students who are either PhDs in psychology or one of them is in training um, as a uh, psychiatrist. He's already passed all of the medical stuff. And um, there's also the issue of uh, university type of philosophy uh, that you've gotten involved with. And so you're asking questions about what's the difference between philosophy and the Dhamma. And I would say perhaps the Dhamma uh, as it should be and the Dhamma as it was in the time of the Buddha was the same that philosophy when we think about it was like way back then. But there has something that's come along the way that has happened almost worldwide. And I think that what that is, is that the, the general population has come to understand how difficult it is to have actual mental freedom in the sense that um, these guys that we had been talking about before literally do a major change in their lives to get away from society. The Buddha was big on that. Then, in fact, uh, one of the hallmarks of the teaching of the Buddha is about getting secluded, getting away from it all, literally. Now, um, at the time of the Buddha, there was already a philosophy that was referred to nowadays as metta or the Brahma Vihara. The Brahma Vihara, the word Brahma Vihara means not the home of the gods, but Brahman in those days also meant the word very, very high class as opposed, you know, uh, with the, the caste system. So the higher caste or the higher class is what we're meaning by Brahman here. Uh, and yet magical thinking is to use a different definition of the word Brahman to make it super high quality, way up in the air, okay? It's the home of the gods rather than the home of very high class. This is what's happened uh, worldwide in many things in the sense of um, how good can things be? There is good, better, and best at real, and then the, above that becomes magical, superstition, and religion, okay? That stuff is above the good and the better and the best, but it is also non-existent, idealistic. And in an idealistic world, everyone has these, uh, lives in Brahma Vihara, everybody is in uh, Metta, everybody is compassionate, everybody works like that, okay? So that's the idea. And you can see the remnants of that when people are doing things that they call Meta practice will be like, um, may all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. Okay, that eventually evolved to about 500 uh, years after the, uh, the Buddha, which would also be about the time of Christ. So there was another new kind of revolution that was happening in that day. That, uh, that within Jesus's teaching, it's come to him and he will save you. This is Paul's message. 
Uh, you can't do it by yourself, that you need help. Who are you to be good? Only God is good, okay? Unless you accept Jesus as your savior, you know, that's a, that whole story. Okay, so in the East, the same thing was happening, which could be called the Mahayana movement. And the Mahayana, actually the word itself means big boat, as opposed to the Hinayana, which is the small boat. Now, uh, in the West, the Theravadas uh, have been taught that Hinayana and Mahayana, that Mahayana is a dirty word. And yet I know uh, Cambodians and Sri Lankans and all of those kind of guys that I met that were raised in the Buddhist culture are quite okay with the word Hinayana. There's no downside to that at all. In fact, there's almost like um, uh, a polished up canoe a golden polished up canoe that'll actually get you across the lake is a whole lot better than a boatload of people who are too lazy to row and nobody knows the direction to take. And the boat itself was put together by whatever people would kind of bring along. Okay. So uh, the Mahayana model then at its very apex is the Bodhisattva ideal. And the Bodhisattva ideal is, is that everybody's got to become enlightened and then I can become enlightened too. All right. But you can see the logical holes in that immediately. For instance, what happens when only Bodhisattvas are left? And now they're fighting with each other. Oh, you go first. No, you go. Oh, I'm going to stay for the last. You got to go. Okay, you're not as good a Bodhisattva as I am. In you go. All right, so... That happens, and also it's another way of looking at it is, is that I want everybody, everybody to shut up and be quiet so I can have some peace and quiet. Well, there you go. Now we're back to seclusion. <laughs> but the idea then that happened was this, this whole idea of Mahayana or the whole idea of we're all in this together. <clears throat> the problem, as I was mentioning, is, is that when you get everybody into a Mahayana boat, nobody's willing to row, and nobody wants to be captain. Everybody wants to be a passenger. But if you're in your own canoe, then you know for sure only you can row. And so there's motivation for the for the Hinayana. That was the original. That was actually the teaching of the Buddha that individuals who, um, let us say, have the very uh, few necessary qualifications can, in fact, take their Hinayana boat to the further shore, which means from the ordinary world of suffering into one's own mind. So uh, this this idea of what are the skills then that are going to be needed, one of the skills that we need is basically the, the, the points of, of sati or the points on the Eightfold Noble Path that we actually have to practice this stuff. That philosophy is going to think about it and uh, the Dharma dude is going to do it. But he's going to do it at the, at the level that he can do it. But where the Mahayana is all about, well, I can't do it by myself, 
but if I can get everybody to help me, then I can do it. Okay. And that's not far from the maddening crowd. That's bringing the crowd with you. So uh, this is what's happened. And you can see that there was actually a further transformation in humanity that happened again about five or six hundred years after that. And in the East, that was the um, the time of what they call Tantra. Now, Tantra is hallmark in in the way of um, if I can't wish everybody to be happy, then let me gain the power to make them so. This is also the idea with a power uh, at one with the universe, but in this kind of thing, the at one or the um, integration with all of reality means that that individual takes control over it and can control it. Because that's in fact what a lot of people are looking for anyway. We're not looking for freedom. We're looking for control. We're looking for power. And so uh, this is the time of the Tantra is when it becomes quite powerful. Um, Buddhism became power in the sense of looking for power. This is, by the way, uh, the hallmark of the age of uh, the Vasudhimaga. This is also the time of the fall of Rome. And this is also the time of the budding and development of Islam. So this 500 AD, 600 AD period of time uh, showed a new version of um, because, in fact, you could you could see that the first 500 years or from Socrates down to Jesus was a time of individuals getting their act together. And then starting in the time which also had to do with the rise of Rome, this is the rise of authority. So the authoritarian mentality took over and that lasted for 500 years. And then that devolved even further into many authorities, which is absolute far out warfare. And so this is the age of war. This is also the age that we call the Dark Ages. Okay, and so in a way, we are in the tail end of the Dark Ages that started at the time of Islam about 1500 years ago. And we ha as a society haven't moved beyond that. But in fact, it seems to be getting worse. If you look at the way that Republicans and Democrats are behaving. <laughs> okay, so there's this heavy, heavy duty competition that has taken over the world that has to do with power. And you can see that that's what happens with Western Buddhism now is a lot of people that are not looking for freedom. They're looking for power. They're looking for spiritual powers. They're looking for uh, things basically that are um, super duper good, so good that they don't exist. And so that's something that's quite interesting because a lot of people say and think that the Buddha taught power. But in fact, he, he didn't. He taught against power. There is a there is a passage in one of the suttas. This is, by the way, the sutta number 12, the lion, the, the large lions or the Mahasanga, uh, the lion's war sutta, 
where he says, basically, there is a guy who has quit the Sangha, a monk who has disrobed and is in town trashing the Buddha. And Sariputta happens to be out on Vendabat when this is, and so he hears what's going on and he comes back and reports it to the Buddha. One of the things that this guy is complaining about is, is that the Buddha does not teach any supernatural um, or claim any supernatural abilities at all, that all he teaches is suffering and freedom from suffering, but he's pretty good at that. And so when the Buddha heard that this was going on, and he says, this guy is praising me when he thinks to be trashing me. And then the next thing that the Buddha says is, how can people get those ideas from the actual teachings of the Buddha? The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the Samapada, and all of that is actually taking people closer to reality, not closer to the supernatural. And so how can someone read uh, or understand the real teachings of the Buddha and get out of that that he can, by uh, purifying his mind, be able to jump into the dirt and take a bath in, in the, uh, the sand and then um, walk on water, walk through walls, that this is not, these are kind of wishful thinking that then became codified uh, so that it becomes a hallmark of the Buddhist practice by fifth, by 500 AD, and there's kind of where we've been stuck with it. Mm. Okay, so this is kind of the evolution that philosophy has gone through also. And that in many cases, philosophy winds up being an apologist or a justification for something that someone else has said before without any proofs. Okay, humans, even though we have the age of enlightenment or the age of waking up that also have was about the time of this of the French Revolution, and it also was the time of Newton and um, science. And so this is the, the new one, okay, and the science now is much closer to reality. But by and large, more than most of the population of the world is still looking at religion through the lens of power rather than through the lens of freedom. Okay, so an individual's freedom at the time of the Buddha, Mahavira and all of that then becomes the big boat, the Mahayana or the Jesus trip which then further devolves into the power and the glory of God and the glory of Rome and the warfare that started uh, with the Dark Ages and Islam and all of that. So human is, humanity is evolving and in these stages of involvement, um, philosophy has also evolved. But back, way back when, before Gutenberg's press, which, by the way, you can say that the real revolution started with with printing and that we can see that that's happened in, in many places. An example is, is that what was it like for humanity when none of us knew how to write anything? Nobody wrote anything down because we didn't know how to write anything down. 
So five sheep were five sheep because I got one for each finger of the hand. But that's about as far as we can go. But it was in um, Sumer with the uh, the cuneiforms, and then very quickly the hieroglyphs of Egypt that begin to build civilizations. That writing, even though I'm kind of tough on uh, writing, the the point is is that we only had in the beginning just practical. We didn't have the classroom. We only had the experiential. We didn't have the didactic. When we build writing into it, now we begin to have both. But over time, what has happened is, is that we have kept the writing and dropped away from the experience. You can see that there were several revolutions along that line, and one of them then was the Gutenberg's press, because that meant now that uh, books could become available to everybody. And now the revolution is the Internet where uh, not just a book is available to everybody here and there, but now almost everything that humans know, all of human knowledge is available to all of humanity. Now we've got a really big book to carry around, and a lot of that book has got a lot of trash novel sections in it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that's a revolution, but in that revolution, we have come more and more into the didactic and less and less into the experiential. Why? Because people want power. I mean, look at the alchemy and all of the magical stuff with stories of Merlin the magician and uh, saints in the um, church and all of this kind of stuff. And yet, Really, we don't have a heritage of individuals being able to clean out their own mind and become free. But in fact, many times all of this didactic information, because it's not fully correctly checked out in didactic, or excuse me, in the uh, experiential, that we stay with the didactic And we can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not real because we haven't done the actual testing that needs to be done. Okay, and uh, one of the examples of that is, is that there has been no mass effort of humanity, like, for instance, the Manhattan Project or World War II, where we had huge numbers of people trying to solve a major problem, right? Here's a major problem that humanity has, and yet we do not have any possibility of solving it. And that is, does God exist or not? Of course, yeah. Yeah, we don't have any answer to that question. And not only that, but we do not have a Manhattan Project kind of organization going on to try to prove whether it exists or not. In fact, the Christians do not want to have that experiment done. They definitely do not want to have a a proof to is there a God or not, because if you if you imagine that they did do the research and did come up with what was real, a whole lot of religions would have to change a whole lot of their stuff. And they don't want to do that. And so uh, we're left with a whole lot of belief systems that are never tested. 
And yet everything about the teachings of the Buddha back to the original teaching is this stuff's got to be tested. It's got to be put into practice. It's not worth anything when it's just words on paper or words in the mind and it's concepts. It has got to be tested. And so that's basically what's what is going on with philosophy is you have a lot of words on paper, have a lot of papers. I mean, libraries are filled with books on philosophy. But the graveyard is full of unhappy dead philosophers. <laughs> right. But don't you think that philosophy might have been a bit helpful? I mean, it's uh, it's it's. It's undoubtedly, I would say, <laughs> that philosophy has done a lot to help sciences um, and help math. And I think, I don't know, the way I've been thinking about it a lot is that like doing philosophy is helpful to stop doing philosophy and to make things clear and to make uh, concepts clear and whatnot, you know, because it can be very easy to use like concepts and be very get very confused very quickly. But, you know, philosophy is all about like, let's make things very clear for ourselves so that we don't have to stay stuck in these concepts forever, but that we can move forward with this. I mean, of course, philosophy, you know, with most of the topics, it can never reach a final decision, but it is nicer to, to spend your time more productively. Oh, well, here's the point then. Um, if we... Uh, don't answer those questions. If we don't do the research necessary, then that means that there are still going to be areas of cloudiness, areas of darkness, areas of doubt. And one of the most important features of the teachings of the Buddha is for the individual to be completely free from doubt. Mm that it's the third fetter and that we're not going to make a whole lot of progress until we become free from doubt. Okay, well, reading books and reading another book, in fact, if you read three books, you're going to get three different versions of the same thing, and that's going to raise doubts because the student doesn't really understand what any of them are saying, but in fact, they may be saying the same thing, but the student has to experience that for himself. And if he doesn't, He's just left with three philosophers. Can't I get on home for something? <laughs> Maybe throw a Nietzsche in there. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the, the point is, is that uh, in, in some cases, these philosophers, when they were writing their stuff way back when, was really struggling with trying to figure things out but they didn't really have the tools that they needed to do that. That this is where the Buddha's method really, really comes in is, is that we've got the tools that we need to figure things out rather than, um, let us say, uh, if the human mind is trained in a certain way and we, you know, we have a certain way of training the students in with our modern education and putting all the kids in the same class in the first grade. Then when they get into being philosophy majors in university, they still see themselves in a classroom. They started that when they were six years old. Okay, so this whole idea of getting stuck in a mindset 
is basically where philosophy is now and that they need to break out of that. But that's the whole teaching of the Buddha is to break out of the norms that uh, uh, along with that um, point that I was making about um, doubt is uh, there are three three fetters. Let's just start talking about that because this is actually quite valuable. The first fetter is personality view. The second fetter is attachments to rites, rules, rituals, the way that things should be. The, the uh, Pali word is sila bhata paramasa. And that second fetter can better be seen as for us in our Western uh, way of looking at it is this is society itself. So basically what we're talking about here is these first fretters is figuring out that who we thought we were is wrong. And that we begin to also to figure out that the way that we were taught about who we are is wrong. And by doing that, we become eventually free from doubt about what's really going on because we can see things clearly. Now, this this issue of doubt actually is um, a process that is not like an insight, a wake up, a big one, but it's a it's a process and that it seems to have three stages. There may be more in there, but the first stage is the stage of uh, I need help. This is actually where Mahayana comes from. I need help because I can't do it by myself. This is the teachings of Jesus. Also, you can't do it without me. I don't think that Jesus actually said that. But that was the words that was put into his mouth. Okay, but this is the whole idea. So the first level of doubt, and this is a doubt that every young child in modern society has, because when we're born, we can't feed ourselves. We don't know what to do. We can't walk. We have to be held and cared for. And when we're about six years old or so, everything has changed in the sense of now the child is put to work. He's no longer being nurtured and taken care of. But even when he is put to work, he is still left in the position of being a victim. Why? Because he does his homework because he was told to do it. He's a victim of now the homework, and every child will tell you that, yeah, we're a victim of this homework. We don't like it. We have to do it, but we don't like it. And so we continue with this victim's mentality as we grow up. And then we uh, see that there is big problems, and we need big help to fix our big problems. And so we go looking for doctors, lawyers, accountants, car mechanics, teachers, priests, government officials, anybody here can help me solve my problems, okay? That's basically the whole idea of the first level of doubt. Imagine that you walk into your room, and there the whole room is a complete mess. The first, and I mean, talk, you know, bookshelves are thrown down. Tables upturned, lamps are roasted against the wall. You know, the place is a real mess. 
when we walk in and see the house is a mess like that, what's the first question we ask? Who did this? <laughs> what happened here, right? And that is who did this means who can I get to fix this mess? Who can I get? I mean, I got to blame somebody. If I can blame somebody, then I'm absolved of any guilt, all right? The problem with this mentality is, is that uh, this mess is inside of one's own mind. And that we messed it up over the years by just throwing stuff in there indiscriminately. Now that we're a meditator, it's almost like for the first time in our lives, we've opened the door and taken a look at the mind and finding out what a mess it is. The first thing we want to do is say, help, <laughs> where's my psychologist? Where's my guru? <laughs> we want help from it. This is the first layer of doubt. This needs to be dealt with with the second noble truth, because the cause of this mess in the mind is something that we're doing in there in the mind. And no outside influences is going to change the way that we're doing things in the mind. That it's in fact the greed inside the mind, the 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 hatred, the ill wills, the fears, and all of that that's in the mind, and the fact that we put all of that stuff in the mind ignorantly when we were children. That children figure out how to live their lives, whether they're going to go around fearful, they're going to go around bullies, they're going to go around being the smartest kid in the room, they're going to go around being the joker, whatever it is. Little kids make really big life decisions when we're kids. And we do it ignorantly. Mm -hmm. It's like what you're talking about with like, um, getting the parts or whatever to play on stage. Yes, exactly. That's where we developed the script. The, the life script that we have is developed as childhood, and it's got a lot of flaws. And we never worked through the experiences that needed to fix that flawed way of looking at things. This is what we would then call a worldview. And that everyone tends to have a worldview about how things are. And a lot of the worldviews always have that there are dangers in this corner and that corner over there and other place like that, that you got to watch your step. But you do it in a way because we put signs up saying that there is danger there, but we actually haven't experimented with it. So we don't know whether it's dangerous or not. We've just been told that it's dangerous. And at other places we've been told are safe. And we walk right in and keep having trouble there, but we don't wake up because we've been told that it was safe. We think that it's safe and then we're confused when it's not. <laughs> All right. So when we begin to see greed, ill will and delusion, that destroys kind of that first doubt and brings us to the point that ain't nobody going to help. Nobody's going to fix me. No doctor. He could give me pills, but he's not going to fix the trash in the mind. Okay. No priest. He can pray over me, but I walk out of that confessional not changed. So when we recognize for sure that we are not going to get help from the outside, now we're confronted with the second level of doubt. 
And that second level of doubt is actually there all along anyway. That's why we brought up the first level of doubt was because we had already decided that we are not up to the task. And that's the second doubt. Can you do this or not? Can you, in fact, clean out your own mind? Because you're not going to get anybody to help you. So this second level of doubt now is the practice, is getting over that second level of doubt by practicing so that in this moment I can wake up and say, hey, you know what I was thinking about just a minute ago or a second ago isn't very wholesome. Let me have more wholesome thoughts right now and I can cheer myself up. That I don't have to go around miserably. So this is where we begin to see that I, I can make some changes here. It's like I can walk into that messy room and pick up one book. And and put it on the shelf. I can pick up one book and put it on the shelf. Look at that. This room is not as much of a mess as it was before. And maybe I can pick up another book and put it on the shelf. And we become pleased with the fact that we can begin to pick up and clean up our own mess. Along the way of cleaning up that mess, we begin to change our whole attitude of, wait a minute, this is not so much of a mess anymore, and that I'm actually enjoying doing the cleanup. This is when we really begin to change the attitude of, I can do this. I can clean out the mind. Anything that does happen, I can do it. That's the second level of doubt, and it goes along with the third level of doubt, which is the proving that the method works, as well as proving that I can do the method. And so the final eradication of the doubt is knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path of the Buddha, and that it can be done, that I understand the path now completely. In other words, I've received it and taking it in. This is when that doubt is eradicated. But the uh, outcome of that doubt, of that eradication of the doubt is a complete change of attitude. Now we have the attitude of a winner before we had the attitude of a victim. Oh, poor me, please help me. Now we've got the attitude. We can do this. And that's the big change, that change of attitude. When we have that change of attitude, along with the fact that now we're looking, we're paying attention, we're, we're investigating. That that investigation is so important because we need to really look at what is that mess on the floor. Take a look at it because some of that mess that's on the floor, we're not going to put it on the bookshelf. We're going to put it in the trash bin and take it out. We don't want that anymore broken no value <laughs> and so much of the cleanup is not just putting things in order but it's separating the trash from the valuable and we've never done that before we ignorantly took the trash in along with the valuable stuff and so we're a big crowd inside we're a mess of useful things um stupid things downright harmful things and some things are just heavy and so when we begin to see what's really going on there, we can uh, make a discrimination and determination. But it's not like that we have to clean up the whole room. All we have to do is just focus on what we see right in front of us right now and then deal with that one.
I see this book. Let me pick up this book and put it on the shelf. That's the real practice. And that when we can pick up one book, that builds confidence that we can put up another one. Okay, so when we get this going, now we recognize that this method works. And that I can do this method. That's when the doubt is eradicated. But that doubt does not get eradicated until we can see that what we can do is deal with those first two fetters. That's the proof of the pudding. And that um, it's something very interesting. I see this on Reddit and, and many other places that people will, will say, well, I've got to get down to the real basic questions like, who am I? All right. The Buddha most specifically in several suttas, but in great detail in the Sava Asava Sutta, states that that's the wrong question. Who am I is one of the favorite questions in philosophy, and the Buddha says that that's the wrong question. Mm-hmm. The right question is, is this suffering or not? Is this wholesome or not? Is this dukkha or not? And if it's dukkha, Look at where this stuff comes from. The cause of it is my own personal wanting something that I don't have or my own personal wanting to get rid of something that I have to deal with. And that when we do it like that, we wind up dealing with those things the same way that we've been dealing with them our whole lives, and that is ignorantly. There's that second noble truth again, that we have to really look at this stuff and and see the discrimination because almost immediately by changing the mind in that mental point of time, we can come out of that suffering by now at this moment not wanting anything. And now we can become satisfied because we don't want anything. And so working with getting into a state of satisfaction is the practice of the Buddha to where almost all ordinary practices of the Buddha is wanting something that they don't have rather than practicing being satisfied with not having what they want. And there's many little details about that. One of the most profound is is to understand that we as humans going around judging, I like this, I don't like that, this is comfortable, that's uncomfortable. But we don't stop there. That we have that furtherness going on that if I like it, then I want it and have to have it. If I really like it, that means I would be better off with it, which means that if I like it and don't have it, I'm less off than I was a minute ago when I didn't like it or I didn't want it. It wasn't there out of sight, out of mind. But now that I see it, I like it, I want it. And now I'm feeling incomplete and unwhole because I don't have what I want. So we do that with all kinds of things, both in philosophy and Dhamma. An example is that I want enlightenment. (laughs) If you want enlightenment, you're not getting it. What you're going to have is wanting enlightenment instead. Okay. Wanting jhanas is a guarantee you're not going to get jhana because first jhana is hallmarked of satisfaction, the sukha, coming out of the wanting. Okay, so people who want past life experiences and they says, oh, well, I can have past life experiences, but I can do those high jhanas. 
The answer is, if you cannot become satisfied and get first, Johnny, you're not going to get the higher ones because they are just more and more and more satisfaction, cleaning things out. If you want past life experiences, you're not going to get them. That's kind of a catch-22, but it's not a catch-22 the Buddha invented. It's the catch-22 that is part of existence. And that's a difficult point for people to understand that so long as you're wanting something, you're dissatisfied. And so we have to get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. We can't get that out of a book. That's something that has to be practiced. And not only that, but more so, it has to do with uh, Sangha because there are elements of that Mahayana boat that we can look at. For instance, if you are in a group of monks who are noble, then that would be like a, uh, a Mahayana boat, and you get to be on this boat, but you're going to be taught how to be a sailor <laughs> in order to be on this boat, because this is a boat of nobles, a noble sailor. We know what we're doing here. Come join us. And we'll show you the ropes, literally. <laughs> However, we want a Mahayana boat where we can just be a passenger, yeah. not the crew. Okay, so this is the idea then, is that no, we don't need passengers on the Mahayana boat. We need crew on the boat. This is when they become Sangha, not just part of the crowd. And so... Uh, the Sangha means that um, not that we take orders, but they, we are around others who have done some of the work you know, on themselves that we want to do on ourselves, and we can just see it. I mean, um, Bikabu, people like Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and Achan Po are an inspiration just by being around them without them having to say anything. Absolutely. Uh, just being in the company or the vicinity, but there's also the whole concept of the transmission of the lineage. The lineage is really important, and it's got several uh, points to it. Uh, that there was a sutta, or there is a sutta, I think it's number 104, and Ananda, this sutta happens right after the Buddha's death. And that Ananda is out on Thendabad and has a conversation with a Brahmin. And the Brahmin wants to know what's the distinction or the difference between the Buddha, who is now dead, and the uh, monks that remain around him. That's a really important question, you know. And Ananda says there is only one. And that was is that the Buddha discovered this on his own. And that's the only difference. All of the rest of us be, were able to take his spark, to take his, uh, not knowledge, but his lifestyle, his way of doing things, rubbed off onto Sariputta. It rubbed off onto Mahamagala, and it's been rubbing off ever since. But that rubbing off does not happen with a book. You can have a noble write a book. But by the time it's published, there's no nobility left in that book for, for it to rub off on the reader. 
that all it now is is just words on pages. You need to put that book down and go spend the year or two with that noble. That's what lineage is really about. But it's not just having one teacher or one noble, but the fact that nobles tend to collect around each other, that nobles tend to associate with nobles. Um, and because of that, like at Wat Suen Mo, I was around a, a number of monks who were very, very trustable. That I, I understood that they knew what was going on. And you could see it in their lifestyle, et cetera, like that. And I didn't get any of that in India. I went to a lot of different gurus with Mukhananda, Rajneesh, and uh, uh, Sai Baba. I mean, the, the list kind of goes on. And that I always felt like that big boat. And here I am just in the back of the room. And, and the connection between me and that teacher is a whole room full of people between me and him, and every one of them is going to fight me to keep me away from him so that they can get closer, right? That's what we have in ordinary situations where there's, there, there's too many people vying for too few resources. <clears throat> Possibly an example of that um, would be, imagine a child that has two different environments or two different children one has the environment that he spends his day in daycare. One or two uh, adults taking care of a whole bunch of children. Which means that that three year old is going to learn most of what he's learning from other three year olds. Now the second child is raised in an extended family, but he's the only little child in the family and all of the other people, his aunts, his uncles, his brothers, his sisters are much older than him. So now he's got 10 or 20 adults with one child. Who is going to get the better education? The child who gets his education from other three-year-olds or the child who is associating only with adults? You see the point? Okay, so if you're associating then with a certain group of people, that rubs off on you no matter what it is that they've got to offer. So if you're a bar fly spending your time in bars with the alcoholics, the likelihood is you're going to become an alcoholic. <laughs> if you spend all of your time on the military base, you're going to start acting and talking and thinking like people on a military base. Even if you're a contractor, when you're on that military base, you act military, okay? So if you wind up in a watt with five or six nobles, then you begin to act and talk and think like a noble. This is the lineage. This is what lineage is all about, is that it's not just one teacher that you see from a distance or uh, a bunch of books that you've read but it is a relationship between the student and the teacher, a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And that um, I, I think that you would agree that most first grade teachers would rather have smaller classes. They know that they can give a few kids a much better education than they can give a whole bunch of kids. Okay, so if you look at it from that way, this is Sangha, that that noble way of looking at it um, 
is uh, transmittable like that. That in, there is a sutta where the Buddha talks about that there are five ways to reach first jhana. The last on the list is the way that we think of meditation in the West. But the first item on the list is where the Buddha is talking about a conversation between a teacher of the Dhamma and his student. Because while we're talking Dhamma, we're talking noble, we're talking uh, wholesome thoughts. And so the student's mind is associated with wholesome thoughts, and that's the primary ingredient for uh, first jhana, is to be free from unwholesome thoughts. And so it's quite possible, uh, whether even the teacher is skilled at it or not, but if the teacher has the skills, then it's even more likely that the student can experience first jhana just by having a conversation with the teacher. They enjoy it. They say, yeah, God, really, I, oh, yeah, I understand now. OK, so this and we get ourselves into a really state of, of exuberant satisfaction. That exuberance with the satisfaction is the pity. The exuberance or the uh, enthusiasm, the eagerness, and that sometimes that kind of word is translated as to serious. But I don't expect students to become serious about the Dharma. I, I expect them to be very playful, enthusiastically playful with it, not serious. Mm-hmm. But our society is serious. And so coming out of the serious is, is part of the, um, uh, the noble rubbing off. The things are not in, that important anyway. Nothing matters that much. Hey, lighten up already. Or, as the Buddha would say it in the natural language, chill, baby, chill. <laughs> in the Pali, that word is nibbana. Nibbana, just to kill, just to cool off, chill out. Now, here's something interesting. In Western Buddhism, nibbana has been, um, let us say, attached to a helium balloon and has been floating right off into space someplace. It's way out of reach for most Westerners. They think of Nibbana as, you know, like a final goal or whatever, rather than the immediate goal. The immediate goal is to just chill out. And so we want Nibbana, and because we want something that we can't have, we're hot for it. And so wanting nibbana is guaranteed you're not going to get nibbana you're hot (laughs) you want something so um you could also say then that that's basically the foundation of western philosophy as we know it now is people in philosophy want something i mean why did you go into philosophy if you didn't want anything right i don't know i mean well, without getting too stuck on that question, yeah. let's go to the next question in the sense that whatever it want, what you wanted from philosophy, what you really wanted deep inside was the satisfaction from the removal of the doubt, because doubt itself is a kind of dukkha. But in fact, it is. It's listed as one of the hindrances. Right. 
But okay. here's an interesting question. There, there is definitely a big difference between something like doubt and something like inquiry, right? Ah, one of them is based upon fear and an inquiry. I've got even a better word, and that is curiosity. Curiosity could be very wholesome, very helpful. But when one is in doubt, they may just remain doubtful and are slow to move because of their fear. Curiosity has enthusiasm. Let's go get that dude. Okay. One's got the attitude of a loser, the doubt. And the other one has the attitude of a winner, the enthusiastic one. Okay. That's the difference. They both have uncertainty in them, but it has to do with our attitude about it. And doubt will prevent us from getting the certainty and uh, curiosity, investigation, exuberance, keep looking, and we're going to find what, what's there. Not, we may not find what we're looking for, but at least we will find what's there. And now we know what's there beyond the doubt. That's the clearing up of the doubt, not getting what we want. If we if we are in the, the pathway of getting what we want, we'll never be satisfied. Because, in fact, we're building up the habit of wanting. So if you get something, I just want more because I'm in the habit of wanting. Instead of coming out of the habit of wanting into the habit of being satisfied. Okay. So here's where it all changes. In fact, we could go so far as to say that Western philosophy and Western Buddhism are very similar, almost the same thing. To where the real teaching of the Buddha is not philosophy, it's liberation from philosophy. Because philosophy and religion and Western Buddhism all have to do with people being dissatisfied and wanting something so that they can become satisfied. And the answer is you're not going to get it. Go ahead and be satisfied without it. And now you've got something. But we have to do that uh, not just as a one time shot, because we have literally been talking ourselves into wanting things our whole life. We've been talking ourselves into wanting things and not getting them. And so we've been talking ourselves into feeling bad. We're experts at it. So now we have to have to develop a new skill. The new skill is going to take some practice over and over and over again to practice. Okay, and what is that practice? The practice now is, is to talk yourself into feeling good. But you, number one, we have to remember to do that. And number two, we have to look at the way things are so that we can see that there's dissatisfaction. There's that unwholesome thought so that we can throw that out and put a wholesome thought, a gladdening thought in the mind. When we do that over and over and over again, we begin to get good at it. And that's when we add that fourth ingredient. I can do this. That is, in fact, a point that the Buddha talks about as the first knowledge. The first knowledge on the path is that no matter how obstructed the mind is, that the student knows that he can clean that out and come back to this present moment to see how things really are, to see the truth of the situation in this present moment. In other words, uh, what we're talking about here is, is that 
normally humans in their understanding have to process their input data. And that processing it is based upon our past. For instance, when I look out and I see an object out there, I say tree. Why? Because I've got a bunch of trees stored in my internal database. Okay. Most people store trees without much emotional baggage. It depends upon how many trees you've fallen out of. But most people, when they see an object and they call it cop or police, we normally have a lot of baggage associated with that. And so uh, different people will see cops differently. Uh, the daughter of a policeman <clears throat> will be very affectionate towards police. That in fact, that's how it was in my family, that my mother just could not see anything wrong with police because my grandfather was a constable in a small town in North Carolina, okay? And basically his only job, uh, there was a gold mine in the area, and his basically his only job was to guard the train when it stopped to put the gold on it. And that's about the only thing he had to do in town, okay, back in the 1950s when things were the way they were now, okay. So my mom never did get the understanding that, hey, not all cops are good. <laughs> you, you have to investigate these cops. You just cannot assume that because he in the same clothing that your dad was that he's a good guy. So this is what we're getting point is, is that whenever we see something in the present moment, we almost always add something from the past to it to get some understanding of what this is. That internal understanding then is, we can call that consciousness, but then we have to use the word consciousness in two completely different ways. This is one of the problems that a lot of Westerners have is we hear one word consciousness and we think it means something. Oh no. It doesn't mean one thing. It means two different things. Okay, so let's talk about it. We can use the word seeing. I can see that car. Or I can use the word, I see what you mean. Both of these are kind of consciousness. One is the external consciousness with the eyes, with the ears, with the senses. And then the other kind of consciousness is inside the mind which is the internal representation of what we see on the outside, except what we see on the outside is raw and almost completely free from emotions. The internal representation, what we see inside, has our own past mixed with it, which means that it may have emotional baggage to it, like my mom seeing a cop and uh, taking her emotional ba uh, baggage with that, to where another, uh, 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 let us say, in that same town, in that same area, there could be people in the black neighborhood who have a completely different view of my grandfather. Okay, that's the whole idea then, is, is that we make of reality something out of reality. And when we can, in fact, clean that stuff out of the mind so that we can see what's really there in front of us, that's the first knowledge, when we know that we can do that. And when we say the first knowledge, we mean the, the knowledge that is actually a step on the path. This is the path. It is uh, super mundane. It is noble. 
and it is a factor that very few people have. Ordinary people don't have that feature. This is a feature of the noble. The noble is the one who knows that he does not have to live according to his belief systems or to the way that he's always seen things, that he can take a fresh look at it. That's noble. That's the first step on the path, because now we can begin to see things clearly, and we need to develop that as a habit. That's a habit, and when we get the habit so that we can get the mind really clear and get the mind fit for work, Bhikkhu Buddha also talked about that a lot. Making the mind fit for work is basically his language for first jhana. That the mind is fit for work when it's in first jhana, which means we're really paying attention. Now, a lot of people say, whoa, wait a minute, jhanas, those things are high class magical. Wow, very few people have jhanas. Now, the answer to that is people who are in and out of jhana all the time, they just don't know it. People get satisfied from time to time. What, a, what kind of world would this be if you were dissatisfied with everything 100% of the time? Pretty, pretty miserable existence. Yeah, and in fact, when people are in that state, they either give themselves an aneurysm, a heart attack, or suicide. It's because it's just 100% misery. Right? Life is not 100% misery. Life is a mix, and you can have some um, control over that ratio when you remember that you have control over that. And so this is really where the teaching of the Buddha lies. There's actually not much philosophy in there, not didactic philosophy, but a whole lot of experiential stuff in the sense of investigating, looking, you got to take those chemicals and pay attention to them. Okay. When I'm saying that way, I'm talking about the fact that um, the Buddha in his day did not have the scientific tools or the investigations of knowledge that have built up. The Buddha had no understanding of modern neuroscience in the sense of the structure of the brain. But he knew the function quite well. And he describes it functionally, and we begin to find out that, wait a minute, there are individual components within the brain that assume various functions. For instance, the amygdala, it's got a function. It keeps us alive. It keeps us terrified of dangers and stay away from dangers, right? So it's got a function. We can't function without an amygdala, but we can train it so that it's more wise in its alerting so we can say then that uh, the amygdala is kind of part of our instincts and that many people in various religions and whatnot talk about following your heart intuition uh, and that kind of stuff and they would assume then that the buddha would have that also but in fact the buddha is saying no that the real point is is that we have to take over and take control of these instincts. We do not let the heart run the show. That we use wisdom instead. We look at what's going on. Now the problem is that wisdom is a little bit slower because uh, the instincts have been built up to to be very, very fast reacting. You can have one um, 
mind moment, let us say a mental image that lasts a tenth of a second, and then the next tenth of a second, the body begins to fill with adrenaline. We get really, really, really uptight. What, what do we mean by that? Well, let us say that a father saw a photo of his daughter with a boyfriend that the father does not approve of. Okay, you know where we're going with this, racism and anti-Semitic and all of that kind of stuff. So every time he remembers that photo, he becomes almost instantly enraged. And all he has to do is remember that little photo uh, because he's, it's almost like a hair trigger or uh, we're wired for that kind of thing. Uh, but the reality is, is that he's only harming himself. He can wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, that photo is not the cause of all of this hatred and suffering inside me right now. That that's an old habit that I've gotten. That's when we begin to recognize that, wait a minute, the photo didn't have anything to do with this, nor the remembrance of the photo. It's the fact that I don't like it. And so this is the practice of meditation, is looking at these various hindrances as hindrances to see that, oh, if I see that photo and I have so such bad feelings, I can change that. I can change that. I can say, instead of looking at that side of the photo and seeing that guy, I can look at this side of the photo and see my daughter and have really great, fond thoughts about her. But we don't realize that we that we'd make those kind of connections inside the mind. This is what actually Anapanasati is all about, is to remember to look at what we're doing, to remember to look at what we're doing. <clears throat> and if we keep looking at what we're doing, then we can begin to make some discerning choices about what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. What is uh, keeping us a victim and what is going to make us a champion? What is making us dissatisfied and what is uh, allowing us to become satisfied? And so we actually then practice to become satisfied. And guess what? It doesn't matter what's written in the book, whatever book it is. If we're satisfied, then that book's okay. And so this is the practice that we want. This is the beginning of the path is that getting into that first jhana, which is a state of satisfaction, and then we begin to do that over and over again so that we know that we can do that. And so that's the, uh, the, the Pali word is uh, sama sankapa. Sama sankapa is right attitude, the attitude of the winner, the attitude that we've got this wire, the attitude of I can paddle this canoe one stroke at a time i got that one now one stroke at a time i got that one and now one stroke at a time i've got that one and now we're moving that's the way to paddle the canoe is one stroke at a time while everybody else is clamoring to get on board some big ship where they can ride in comfort and ease where in fact we've got the easy journey and we're already underway where they're still trying to load So this is the way that we practice. This is a small boat. Let's get in there and let's clean up one's own mind.
Now, how do you feel right now? I feel good. I feel very good. Yeah, yeah, totally. I told you that's what I was. I, I actually set you up for this. Look <laughs> at how you feel now. Talking about the Dhamma, and we begin to feel really good. It's amazing. It really is. It's, <laughs> it's interesting because it is interesting. Like again, it really only happens when you really talk about it. You know, like you can read the books about it or whatever, and you don't. You really don't get the same. You get a hint of it, but it's not the same. Yeah. So this is the teaching of the Buddha. There is more to it than that. When we were talking about lineage, and that is, is that in lineage the beginners or the new students are encouraged to teach the Dhamma while nobles are listening. That's actually the teacher training that you could say. In fact, you probably know about this. I, there's there's one that I know of for sure. It's um, uh, Winford, I believe is the name of it. It's, uh, the, it's a university in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and it's specifically a teacher's training college. This is a grade school, a high school. It's got all of the classes, but the teachers that are teaching these kids are not teachers yet. But there is another teacher in the room, a real teacher, right? That, and so you have the teacher with, within training. This is the way that Sangha operates also. That in the West, we have the idea, oh, if I read enough Dhamma books and get enough Dhamma information, I can be a Dhamma teacher. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, that's how all of them, I mean, everyone that you can name, that's how they became a teacher, is by reading books and getting the, um, uh, the feeling that they can spout back what they got out of a book. To where real Sangha or real lineage means that you have to teach the Dhamma in front of someone that you know knows Dhamma better than you do. And so you're on your toes. You can't <laughs> just make something up and tell the students. Uh-huh. you got to follow the, um, uh, um, the noble pathway. So this is actually also part of lineage is the teacher training. I know I have <laughs> been in that. And in fact, the very first time that that happened, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says, today I'm going to talk about uh, the Four Noble Truths, and I want you to help me with that. And I says, sure, okay. And then we go in there and it says, today we're going to talk about the Four Noble Truths. He says it in Thai, and I put it back in English, and I go back to him, and he says, you finish it. <laughs> he just gives the title of the talk, and then he just points to me, and you're on the spot now, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's ha- that's that's happened several times that on the spot oh it's your turn to talk go ahead and give a talk <laughs> i did that with kids and whatnot in uh in the united states as well as um, um other places but then uh as late as uh 2011 i'm there visiting in watso and moke and achan po just comes up and says tomorrow morning at 7 30 in the morning is my time to talk you do it <laughs> <laughs> so at least i got about 12 hours notice that time <laughs> but then when i gave that talk surprisingly enough there was a whole lot more monks 
there at that talk than would have normally been for Achan Po. I think that Achan Po went out and got everybody rounded up just to give me pressure. <laughs> so this is also part of the lineage is not just having it rub off on the student, but then give the student the strength to be able to teach it with confidence. Because he's gone through that teacher training program that can only be available in the Noble Sangha. But all of it has to do with didactic. Very little of it is experience or is excuse me, got that backwards. Very little of it is didactic It's almost all experiential. And so this is what a philosophy uh, at the university is missing. What would you do personally to make improvements to what modern Western philosophy now that we've, we've known a little about the Dhamma? And I'm not asking you to answer that question now, and it's not a rhetorical question, but it's something to think about, to, to mull over, to, uh, uh, to put some points to. What kind of experience can we have? I bet you'll wind up with something like Anapanasati for philosophers. Um, yeah. Okay, I really need to get working on this paper, but I, I really have had an amazing time. I appreciate it dearly. Uh, been honored. May you enjoy writing that paper. I will. I really will. I, yeah, I will. Thank you. I will be satisfied with every well. Actually. Yeah. Well, this, <laughs> this has been a different kind of approach to the topic, but I think that we've gotten some good ground coverage here for you. Thank you, sir. Hey, you take a deep breath and just enjoy the moment and then write a <laughs> sentence and then take another deep breath and say, hmm, this is going good. This paper is running just fine. Yeah, totally. We'll see you later. Um, good to call. I'm glad to see you. We'll see you as well.